0: So we're doing the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3 at the scene. Let's just read them together. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honour and the house for every house is builded by some man but he that built all things is God and Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after but Christ as a son over his own house (coughs) whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end and that's our reading this evening, there's just some more folk coming in but we'll just keep going So when we come to this section of Hebrews, let's just do a little recap And see how we've arrived at where we are here at the beginning of chapter 3 And the flow of the book is that the writer is, he's writing to people who've obviously got a Jewish background That's evident when you read through the epistle, we've noted that because he assumes and he refers to so much of Old Testament um, scriptures and Old Testament uh, Jewish procedures and the offerings uh, and so forth. And these Christians with that Jewish background had endured a tremendous amount of suffering and persecution. And we perhaps would find it difficult just to appreciate the extent of that, but they were being ostracised by the established communities put outside of that and it had an impact um, on them Some of them had to leave their homes Some of them had uh, their homes uh, vandalised And their possessions taken And also physical violence against them You get that in chapter 10, verse 32 to verse 34 So the writer is kind of He's giving them a recalibration of their thoughts And of their mindset Particularly in relation to the Lord Jesus He's the common thread that runs through this whole epistle. And he's being set forward in their thinking as supreme, as greater, as the one who far supersedes all they left behind in Judaism. In fact, fulfilling what they left behind in Judaism. So he is the fulfillment of all these types and shadows and pictures that they had participated in, which affected them to the extent of their diet, to the extent of their weekly routines and their relationships, so forth. So he wants to reaffirm to them that coming to Christ wasn't a mistake. Coming to Christ should not then be reversed. They shouldn't go back to what they had left behind. And coming to Christ, they actually made the right decision because he is so much greater than all they left behind, even although he's not tangible, even though he's not like a place you can go to, he's not like stuff you can hold, he's not like um, things that your senses can interact with, nonetheless he in himself is still greater than everything they left behind and he wants to demonstrate that they need nothing in addition to him, he is not only supreme, he's sufficient And that is developed right through the epistle. For if, in fact, they have come into the good of a better covenant, then the mediator of that covenant is obviously better than the mediator of the old covenant. Now we come to chapter 3 and verse 1. And he's been speaking about the supremacy of Christ um, in the first two chapters. And we saw that he is greater than angels. And that was demonstrated extensively from old testament scriptures that he's far above angels he's greater than angels and then we saw the the true manhood of the lord jesus as part of that supremacy to angels because he was made a little lower than the angels in order to die principally and that also led to him being exalted far above where angels could ever be and so that whole process of him coming down and then being exalted required true manhood in his part. And the, the writer here, he takes in chapter 2 quite a bit of time to establish that true manhood and says, but we see Jesus and so on. So when you come to chapter 3 and verse 1, the first word of the chapter is relying on the information conveyed in the first two chapters, the word wherefore. Now, I'm reading out the authorised version um, you may have uh, different versions in your hand if you have that um, it may refer you back or not I'm not sure but this word wherefore is helpful and it's one of the reasons why I still study from the authorised version although I use different versions in my study is that I do like the some of the key connecting words in the text which are easy to remember and are good links for structure and flow and this is one of these words wherefore because whenever you see that word wherefore <laughs> then you're always looking to what it's referring to, what he's building on, what he's, he's taking from, and what is established, and then what he's going to develop, wherefore. And that's the very thing. On the basis of what he said already, you could translate it. He's now going to say some more. So on the basis of seeing Jesus in the particular immediate context, of seeing Jesus, yes, a little lower than the angels, as seeing Jesus as the captain of their salvation, as seeing Jesus as the great sanctifier of these saints, setting them apart to God, as seeing Jesus, who is even not ashamed to call them brethren and in his true manhood, of seeing Jesus, who has destroyed Satan and Satan's greatest weapon, death, as seeing Jesus who has delivered them out of bondage, all of that was in the previous section. And he says, wherefore? So having gone down all that, having learned all that, here is what flows from that. He says, wherefore? So again, when you see that word, you're drawing on the information already established. And he's going to give two titles of the Lord Jesus here in verse 1. And he's going to ask us to consider him in these two ways. He'll speak about him as the apostle, number one, and secondly, the high priest of our confession. Now, he's already actually introduced these concepts in chapter 2, albeit he hasn't used the titles. So he's paved the way, which is why he uses the word wherefore. So, for example, he will speak about the Lord Jesus being sent down from heaven to earth, the apostle, the sent one, in verse 9 down to verse 15 of chapter 2. And we went into that in some detail. And then he will speak about, from verse 14 to verse number 18, he will speak about the fact that one of the reasons that he became a man was that in his present ministry, as our high priest, our great high priest, he would be able to empathise with us. I remember the first time someone told me the difference between empathise and sympathise. I just thought there was a mistake. They meant to say sympathise and they said empathise. They're two different words. And it's actually quite important to think about the distinction in those words. So for example, if you've never walked, it's just in my head, if you've never walked the West Highland Way, Kenny, if you've never walked the West Highland Way, then when members of your family do, you can sympathise with them. You can feel sorry for them. You can even, I don't know if you all feel a bit of compassion. Maybe not. Charlie says no. Um, But you will be able to be compassionate, be sympathetic, you know, put your arm around them, help them along and so on. But you can't empathise. So it's only someone like Wallace, who's walked it numerous times, who can empathise because he has gone the way before. So he's walked that path that you're now walking, so he understands what it is, not just in a kind of intellectual way. He's experienced it. So therefore, with more understanding, and to a greater extent, he can help. He can empathise, so he can talk to you probably at some length, about all the miles and all the places and what to expect every little bit only because he's done it before now when you think about the lord jesus that's why he's fitted to be our great high priest not because from heaven he can look down into earth and see the travel and see the, the terrible experiences of his people he did that in the old testament context you remember the nation of Israel in their captivity in Egypt and the cry of them in their bondage was heard by the Lord but the Lord had never been here in bondage but that changed because when the Lord was incarnate when he became a man and when he lived here here is something that he never could have done before his incarnation he can now empathise as our great high priest because he's been here he knows what it's like to walk this path of life, he knows what it's like to grieve and to mourn and to be rejected and to be humiliated he knows what it's like to do a hard day's work he knows what it's like to be part of a family community with the ups and downs of that so he's able to empathise which is what we established at the end of chapter 2 it is one of the reasons that he came right down to where we were so that he can now minister as our great high priest not just for a short time but for the, for, the, for the duration, right through our life's experience and beyond it, our great high priest, apostle, sent from God. High priest, the one who can represent us to God. And you see these dual offices of the Lord Jesus introduced in chapter 2, albeit the title's not employed. So if we come back to verse 1 of chapter 3. And what we discover here is, by the word wherefore, he then describes his readers in this way. He says, holy brethren. Now, that sometimes could be almost used in a kind of sarcastic way, or it could be used in a kind of abusive way. Um, But actually, it's speaking about status. Holy brethren. It's the only time, I think, that the phrase occurs in the New Testament. Now, it's not speaking to the qualities of the individual. It's not speaking to a standard of morality. It's not speaking to the standard of spirituality of this individual. It just means that we have been set apart to God. And in this context, this is speaking about our status before God. He identifies us as Brothers, brethren, you remember he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Brothers, he says, set apart by God to God. So not set apart from this world into no man's land, but set apart from this world, but set apart positively to God. And, of course, we've already learned that he's the great sanctifier, the one who does set us apart. We saw that in chapter 2. He that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are both one. So we are holy brethren, set apart to himself. Now he then goes on and says, in addition, that we are also, or the readers were also, partakers of the heavenly calling. Now, why does he use that second qualifying expression? For this reason. In the Old Testament context, you remember that is their background, Jewish people who've been converted. It would have been true. To call them holy brethren in the Old Testament. But it would not have been true to say that they were partakers of the heavenly calling. You see, God had called his Old Testament people. And their promises in the covenant promises given to them as a nation were very much focused on earth. And God spoke about how he would bless them. And spoke about earthly blessings. Spoke about a kingdom. Spoke about the multiplication of them as a people. Spoke about his presence amongst them. But here there's a distinction. Because they no longer, because they've come to Christ for salvation, they no longer are earthbound in relation to their blessings and their calling. But rather, their calling is now a heavenly calling. So when Paul writes... To the Christians, for example, in the Ephesian epistle, he says you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus. And our hope, our inheritance, it's all invested in the heavenlies. We have a heavenly calling. If you're at a covenant conference, then you heard Alistair Sinclair speaks so well in 1 Thessalonians 4 and he did use this expression that, um, I can't remember who he attributed it to, but he used this expression, we're not looking for the undertaker, we're looking for the uptaker and that actually is very true. Our focus, our hope is very much heavenly and so it's a heavenly calling where our blessings are established. So he says this to this people. Consider the Apostle and High Priest of our confession profession, Christ Jesus. Now, what does the word Apostle mean? Well, in its basic sense, it means someone who is sent. And again, this is the only time I think in Scripture when it's applied to the Lord Jesus, when he has this title applied to him. Now the focus in context is very much upon the humanity of the Lord Jesus as being the one sent in his incarnation, sent here to earth, the apostle. The Gospel of John has this very much as a theme. You can trace it right through. I just noted a few quotes, but you can really find quite a lot where this concept is communicated, the idea of him being sent. The Lord Jesus often refers to it in John's Gospel. For example, John 3 verse 34 for he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. So here he comes, he's the apostle, and he's coming with the words of God, sent by God to deliver these words. For God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. In John three seventeen, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So he's come to save, sent to save, sent to deliver the words that God gave him to deliver. And then in John 5, verse 36 to verse 38, But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. The Lord Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as being sent. Now, the apostle title of the Lord Jesus conveys that. So when he's here, he is here with the full accord of heaven. He is here representatively. He is here on a mission. This isn't random. This isn't reactive. This is eternally planned in the councils of God that God would send his son. And his son came as that apostle. Now, the word apostle was used extensively in our New Testament. The apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, you've got the apostles of the church. And these apostles were also sent by the Lord Jesus into this world as witnesses of him and his resurrection. And they had the signs of an apostle. So they were very much a kind of official uh, uh, group and with an official title and you can identify them as such. And they had the signs of an apostle and so forth. We don't have them now. But apostle with a small a, if you like, very much is, is used about someone, for example, is an apostle of the, of the church, sent from the church, representing the church. So a local church can send someone on a mission and in that sense, they're an apostle with a small a not in the way that Paul, Peter and so on not with all of that invested authority of Christ that they had particular to them but the word just means sent the second expression is high priest now I'm not going to develop that expression because actually it's developed in the book as we go on quite extensively and that title of the Lord Jesus already mentioned really in chapter 2 and verse 17 he is a merciful and faithful high priest. And he kind of just mentions it in passing here. So here are the two things. The apostle brings God to us. The high priest does the opposite. He brings us to God. The Lord Jesus does both. And it is marvellous. That he would come and that he would go. That he would come here to be with us and then he would represent us and minister on our behalf in heaven for us. The work of Christ did not stop at his ascension. It continues and we're glad it does. Now, let's come to what he's got to say in particular about him because he's asked us to consider him. Now, that really would be a verse you could use as a slogan for the whole of the book of Hebrews. Consider him. Now, the word consider means to think about something by taking the time to observe it carefully. So, this isn't a fleeting glance, this is a long consideration. In fact, it's the same word that the Lord Jesus used when he says in Luke 12, verse 24 and verse 27, to consider the ravens and to consider the lilies, so in other words he's saying there's the Lord Jesus, we're going to speak about him we have spoken about him want to get you to fix your mind, your attention your heart upon him now before he even needs to develop that in the particular context of who he's writing to that would be an excellent exhortation to take away from tonight Consider him. You know, in Christian life, there's lots to think about and lots to talk about and listen to and read and all the rest of it. And much of it is very profitable. But the truth of the matter is, we ought to be careful how we apply our mind and spend our time, even when we're reading or watching or listening about things related to the Bible. You see, we can't actually get off course and end up fixated with arguments or with controversies or fixated with uh, the structure of assembly gatherings and all these kind of things. And, And all of that is good and well and all of that is necessary and so forth. But it should not divert us from the Lord he must be central to our thoughts he must be central to our study he must be the ultimate of where we go in our Bible study and our Bible reading and our conversation about controversies and all this kind of thing it all ought to lead to him or else where else is it leading it then becomes pride it becomes self indulgence it becomes a waste of time consider him he's a challenge and you know you know me well enough this is as much a challenge for me as it is anyone sitting there in front of me ask yourself the question briefly this week did I consider him? did I take time at any point in the week to think about the Lord Jesus and to consider him? How do you actually do that? How do you do that? Well, you don't, you don't empty your mind for a start. You empty your mind and Satan will fill it faster than you can empty it. You don't empty your mind. You don't sit and go and do meditation, try and cross your legs and all that kind of stuff, and empty your mind. The Bible never tells you to empty your mind. The Bible tells you to fill your mind with that which is profitable and right and spiritual and Christ focused. And and that filling of your mind with these things, yes, will purge out and empty out the things that are negative, but don't don't create vacuums in your thinking. But rather, the only way I would judge to, to consider him is to learn of him. To learn of him. And to think about the things that you learn. So you're not just thinking about the same things all the time, but you're trying to learn something about the Lord. Or remind yourself about something that you've learned previously. And then that's what they used to speak about in terms of meditation and quiet times. That language is going to disappear from our talk. That's what it was. It was just pondering, thinking, considering what you had learned. It's not that you learn by your consideration. You actually need to ponder what you learn from scripture. And that's the kind of meditation. It just doesn't pop into your head. So, he he says, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Now, in verse 2, down to verse 6, he's going to establish that the Lord Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, you might think, what's the point of that? You know, why not just make the statement and then leave it? Why spend verses trying to establish this? Well, remember the context, and the context is important. Remember this that Moses was very, very important to these people. In fact, it's very important in the Old Testament Bible. And remember this that for the Jewish people, there really was no greater leader in their history than Moses. Moses was the baby saved by God and put into an ark. Moses was the man who stood before a bush that burned and was not consumed and he had to take his shoes off because he was standing in holy ground. God sends Moses on the mission of all missions. Go back into the place where you've been declared a murderer and go and speak to the main man, Pharaoh, and say, let my people go. Deliver a slave nation out of captivity. God uses Moses to bring down the plagues of God upon the nation of Egypt, and then it is through his leadership that God takes that nation out of Egypt through the Red Sea, dry shod. Moses is the man with endless patience. It would seem an unique meekness. You know, sometimes we focus on the, the, the kind of occasional flare-up of Moses' Anger and forget the 40 years of his patience with these people who tested his patience all the time, constantly. God enabled Moses to bring water from a rock, to bring manna down from heaven. It was to Moses that God gave the Ten Commandments up in Mount Sinai with that unique experience that comes down. His face is shining. Why? Because he's been communing with God face to face. Moses was a remarkable individual. In fact, when challenged by Aaron and Miriam, his siblings, in Numbers 12, and this is what's quoted here in verse 2 of Hebrews, and that's why the lead up to this. Listen to what um, is said in Numbers 12 in defense of Moses from verse 6 to verse 8. And he said, hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. That's okay for, for your kind of run-of-the-mill prophet. However, he says, my servant Moses is not so. Who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He says, how dare you speak against my servant Moses? Do you not know that he's the only one amongst you that I will speak to face to face? Mouth to mouth. Different from every other person. And he rebukes Aaron and Miriam for the presumption in questioning the authority of Moses. So, so here's Moses, now to the Jew, there really could hardly be a greater man than Moses, there could hardly be a greater leader, and yet Lord Jesus is the captain of their salvation. Was there ever a man who stepped into the presence of God to mediate for the nation of Israel after the terrible sin of the golden calf and all the other sins, and, and Paul refers to them in the Corinthian epistle, and it was Moses who stood before God and pleaded for the preservation when God was going to destroy them and raise up a new people from Moses himself. He pleaded for them. Was there ever a priestly man like Moses? Yet the Lord Jesus is our merciful and faithful high priest. You see, to the Jews, how could it be that this Lord Jesus Christ, this Son, could be greater than Moses, who was the mediator of the old covenant, the man who stood before man and God and delivered the message of God to his people? Well, we're going to see very quickly here that the Lord Jesus, the Son, actually, is not named as Jesus Uh, until this point the son is so much greater than moses so in verse number two notice this it says of him who was faithful to him that appointed him as also moses was faithful in all his house faithfulness characterized the lord jesus now paul extols the virtue of faithfulness Now, faithfulness is not the most glamorous or exciting trait. You know, if you say to someone, there's someone who is faithful, it's not stirring, you know, faithful. It's like dull. It's just run of the mill. Someone who's consistent, someone of integrity, someone who serves well, someone never lets people down. Faithful. Lord Jesus was faithful it's a fantastic attribute it's an attribute of deity and it says here of Christ that he was faithful as apostle and high priest so in terms of him coming from God and discharging his responsibilities as a representative of almighty God he was faithful he did what he came to do So he said in John 6.38 I came down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him that sent me and this is the Father's will who has sent me that of all that he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. He discharged his service for God faithfully. As a high priest, still the same. So you have the faithfulness of Christ and by the way, Kenneth Woost always W-U-E-S-T who's always worth reading notes that that word was who was faithful is in the present tense not in the past and would be better rendered who is faithful you see it's the general designation of inherent character that's been spoken about yes it was true of him in the past But it's still true of him now. He is characterized by faithfulness. But then notice this little expression, which is important in the verse as also. As also. So, what you have in this verse, as he's bringing Moses and Christ together, think of how skillfully the writer does this. Moses, venerated, respected, Uh, All that kind of um, appreciation of him by the Jew uh, and now being being told that the Lord Jesus is in fact greater than Moses. How does he do it? He brings them both together at a point of commonality. This is something they shared before he then moves on to the contrast. So here is in fact not a contrast but a favourable comparison because he says as also. Moses was in all his house so they appreciated Moses' faithfulness it was bound up in their history they knew that he had served so well all these 40 years and that he never let them down etc etc and he said listen that's a given you know how faithful he was amongst the household of God at that time which was the nation of Israel well in the same way the Lord Jesus is faithful So there's your point of connection. There's your comparison. And it's favourable. Now he moves on to contrast as he proceeds. So, and by the way, it is pretty remarkable that Moses, with all the provocations that he received, was as meek and patient as he was. It's actually incredible. You know, in our readings and family, and extended family, you know, most of us are going through a, an annual uh, reading plan, and and I just have come through sort of Exodus and beyond into uh, into the uh, through the Pentateuch, and you don't read very far into the wilderness journey before the complaints and the mourning and the very personal ab- abuse starts against Moses. I mean, you, you don't need to turn too many pages. But of course the Lord Jesus is also subject to the same in his present ministry. And his faithfulness in his present ministry is actually even more remarkable. Because Moses we're going to see actually failed. The Lord has never failed. And yet the Lord has remained faithful to us who constantly fail. Daily fail. So when you look at Israel, they failed. When you look at us, we fail. Moses, remarkably faithful. The Lord, remarkably faithful. Then we come to this. So there's two points here. One in verse 3 and 4 and one in verse 5 and 6. Simple points. So here we see in verse 3 to verse number 4. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Oh no, here's here is something different. So here is where they separate, if you like. So although Moses was a great leader, so he was, he was a member of the household of God. And that household, that house, that building, was actually something of which he was a member. He was part of it. The Lord Jesus was different. He was the builder of it. Now he's going to state a, a very simple um, point that the Lord was counted worthy of more glory than honour, than more glory than Moses. Now that's the perfect tense, so this is the permanent state of the Lord Jesus, ongoing. He's to be honoured above Moses, and he states a principle with the word "inasmuch" halfway through verse three. If you just see that "inasmuch," so there is the statement of separation. Okay, so you've got the point of of commonality faithfulness hold on they're not the same because in verse 3 the lord actually is worthy of much more is counted worthy of much more and still should be much more glory much more honor than moses why in as much so now is the explanation here it is and it's a statement of a general principle he who builds the house has more honor than the house I'm not a house builder we know house builders here in bridge of weir And, of course, we give them much more honour than the house that they build. Maybe. So, when you think about the two things, it's so patently obvious in a natural sense that the person who builds it gets more honour than what he builds. That's a general principle. And the Lord Jesus is the builder of God's house. He is God. His deity is, is really being implied here. And God uses Moses, as I've mentioned, in so many ways to bless his people and to lead his people. But remember this, that the people of God were brought into being by God himself. Who called Abram out of out of the Chaldees and made a covenant with him? Who revealed himself to Moses in that burning bush? Who was with Israel in the wilderness in the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night? Who was the rock that followed them? Well we're left in no doubt in the New Testament that rock was Christ. And so he fed them with manna he gave them water from the rock see 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 to 4 and the principle is established there in verse number 3 and then applied particularly to this argument in verse 4 with the word for for every house is builded by someone but he that built all things is God. So we're left with no with no kind of doubt in our mind. That the one who built all things is God. That's the household of God in the Old Testament. It's also the household of God in the New Testament. Remember, Paul says this, Now therefore you are no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. In Ephesians 2 and verse 19. First Peter 2, verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house. So God created a household in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel and proselytes who joined that. And then in the New Testament, he's still building. There's still a people of God here upon earth. And the church is that people here upon earth in our present day. No longer in the Old Testament context, now in the New Testament context. And the God that built the Old Testament household of God is building the New Testament household of God and we understand this, that in referring to the Lord Jesus and saying, consider him in this context, God and Jesus are connected. It's an expression of the deity of the Lord Jesus here. Moses, yes, you're part of what God was building. But hold on. He said to these people, listen, we're in a new context. And we're worshipping, not someone who's part of the household, but someone who is building the household. Secondly, the second point here. Moses was a servant, but Christ is a son. The second simple point of superiority and greatness. So verse 5, Moses verily was faithful, we've seen that, in all his house as a servant. Now, if you go to Bible teaching meetings for a wee while, then you learn some Greek words. And you learn a lot about what's not right about Greek tenses as well. Especially if you get a new Bible and um, start referring to them with Aeros tense and so on. And very few of us, me included, really understand the Ares tense. But anyway, when you come to this word servant, then you may have heard the Greek word for bondservant. It's a common word that's used to speak about the servant. But it's not used here. In fact, the word for servant here is, in fact, only used here in the whole of the New Testament. And it's not the word for bondservant. Slave. Slave. It comes from, yes, you might recognise that it comes from the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint and Numbers 12, verse 7. We're back to Numbers again in that statement about Moses that I quoted, Numbers 12, verse 68, earlier on. We're back into it again. And here, Moses is described as a servant. Now, the servant word there is... Also used, apparently, according to Woost, I think, and Vincent, is also used of a physician caring for the sick, serving the sick. So the idea is if you think about a doctor and how that doctor ministers to and serves someone who is a patient, it's very different from a slave serving a master. A bond servant serving a master. There's a complete different context. And that was the way that Moses was. There was a compassion about Moses. When you see him um, standing before God and the people of Israel and ensuring their preservation, there was a commitment to the people of God, to the nation of Israel. He, he was part of it. He was invested in it. He, he loved and served them. and He did so with great compassion. It wasn't just obligation on his part and duty. So Moses is to be commended. He was faithful as a servant. And mind you, it says this, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. You know, one of (coughs) Moses' great roles in the big picture of, of, of biblical revelation was to speak of Christ. And you think about what Moses wrote, the Pentateuch. The Lord Jesus said this in John 5 verse 46. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me. For he wrote of me. Do you know, that gives us great authority to not only study the New Testament, but to get into the Old Testament and to get into Genesis and, dare I say, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and we've just, I've just read through, some of us really are going to referred to all the kind of leprosy stuff and the scabs and all that kind of thing and where you to go and what you to do and you wonder what? How can that possibly be connected to the Lord Jesus? Well, of course, that's for us to discover. It's marvellous. The Lord did it himself, actually. It would have been great to have been a kind of me listener tagging on behind in Luke 24 on the two and the way to Emmaus. Remember this? It says that, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded, exegeted. It was expositionary ministry from the Old Testament. So it can be exposited from the Old Testament, we don't just need to keep that to the New Testament, the text can be, out of the text can come the truth concerning Christ, not imposing it in some kind of fanciful manner, but actually extracting it from, if you had been here on Saturday and listened to Alan Gamble, teachers on expository Bible teaching, then this is the great thing that he was teaching us, let the text speak, don't stand in front of it, stand behind it, and let the truth come out of the text well actually the Lord did it himself he expounded unto them in all the scriptures and things concerning himself Acts chapter 3 verse 22 for Moses truly said unto the father a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me him shall ye hear in all things whatever he shall say unto you so we could go on Uh, Moses listen don't go back to Moses to venerate him but the writer to the Hebrews say go back to Moses to learn from him about things that are fulfilled in Christ because he was a servant and his service primarily in this context was left upon the page of Holy Scripture, as a testimony, as a witness of the things which were to be spoken after. The Pentateuch is all about things that will happen after. So don't go back to it. We're now in the kind of after of it. But what a contrast with the Lord Jesus here finally in verse 6. Not now a servant in his house, But as a son over his own house so we have here the sonship of the Lord Jesus contrasted to the servanthood of Moses and then he says this and I'll finish with this point he says whose house doesn't say are you he says are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now some might say, and take this verse, and say, There is an evidence that you can't be sure that you're saved until you get to heaven. Because you need to hang on till you get there. You need to, to you need to continue in order to obtain. So continuation is Put forward by some as a means of obtaining and entering in to salvation. But actually, it's not. Because that would contrast so many clear scriptures that teach us that when we believe, and upon believing, we are saved. And once saved, never lost. It's, it's the principle of what's called the, here's a big word, perspicuity of scripture, which is this, it just means clarity. It means that you interpret some things that you might find hard by the things that you find clear and easier. And so the hard is, is, is understood in light of the easy and the simple and straightforward. So when you come to this, what does it mean? Well, holding fast does not earn you salvation, but holding fast demonstrates the reality of your salvation. It's an evidence that you've got it. You might say that's a subtle difference, but it's a very important difference. Because you entering into the fullness of salvation is not dependent on the extent that you can cling on to Christ. Because none of us actually, if we're honest, would be in heaven. It is dependent to the extent that He holds on to you in the double clasp of deity, in His hand and the Father's hand. And remember this of all that the Father gave Him, you have lost none. None. We are secure in Him. The Holy Spirit indwells us as, as the earnest of our inheritance. So one writer said this, if under the pressure of persecution, you get right up to the edge and you never make that final commitment of trusting faith and repentance, you never actually get saved, but you're right up to the edge of it. So many do. And everything else in your life may indicate that you've got it, but you don't. You know all about it, but you've never actually put it into practice. You believe John chapter 8, check that out for non-saving faith in John chapter 8 because in John chapter 8 the Lord's speaking to Jews who believed his word and then it says they believed him and then the Lord Jesus goes on and says if you, you shall be, if you implement my word you shall be my disciples indeed, if and then at the end of the chapter they take up stones to kill him So at the beginning of the chapter it says they believed it says they believed his word and then he said, hold on a minute you actually need to trust and then demonstrate the reality of it but they didn't what they demonstrated was hatred against Christ so there is such a thing as non-saving faith in that context but true living faith it means that you'll never be lost and by the way Faith always shows itself. Always. Not all the time, but it always shows itself. And if it's never shown itself, it's because it's not there. That's the reality. If it is the case, now this is James, of course, and it's the difference between you know, the test of of our reception response to the word, not just hearers but doers of the same, true religion and so on in James chapter 2. But if it is the case that our religion, using the words of James 2, is simply what we say, just words, adherence to some creed or something, that's not true, loving, saving faith. The reality of that is seen in character and in action. And so, we come to the end of this wee section, and what what we've seen here is, and it would be so significant to the readers of this, that yes, Moses was a great man, but listen, Christ is far, far greater. Far greater than even the greatest man of the nation of Israel. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Moses, the greatest leader, the meekest man in all the earth. But listen, the Lord is superior and supreme, way above him. So if you're going to go back to Moses, only go back to him for what you can learn of Christ. Only go back to him to, 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 to read the testimony of those things which you'll come after. Don't go back is the message. And leave behind what you've come to in Christ. Don't go back. And so consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Let's just pray.